All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of Dulos. I'm Levi Bimba, and today we're going to talk about the most miserable people on the planet. So, when you talk, when you, when we think about misery, what do you think, what comes to mind? Misery, for me, it sounds like somebody who's just lost all hope, despair, just completely despondent, depressed, they, nothing really cheers them up. And when we look at the Merriam-Webster definition that I have handy here, it says that misery is a state of great unhappiness and emotional distress, great unhappiness and emotional distress. And in relation to the emotional distress that many people have been feeling on the right side of the political aisle in regards to the the just past election of President Biden, uh, I think we can clearly see that there's a lot of people that are under great emotional stress and greatly unhappy for sure. And the Bible talks about this word miserable, actually uses the word miserable in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, where it says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Now, just to give you a little bit of background on that, Paul was talking to the Corinthians about the resurrection. And there were some had come into the church that said there was no resurrection. And Paul was like, that's a, such a ridiculous notion, because if there's no resurrection, then there's no point in us preaching the gospel. There's no point in uh, and living for Christ when you're just going to die and return to the dirt. I mean, so he's so he's telling them in that verse that if you're if you if you only have hope in this life, then in Christ, then Christians are the most should be the most miserable be, miserable people on the planet. But obviously, we know that we're not the most miserable people on the planet because we do have a sure hope in Christ, and we do have a a a a set kingdom waiting for us in heaven. But I just wanted to pull out that verse because I think it's indicative of what we've seen over the past year with all the riots, with all the anger in the culture, with all the discontent, the great unhappiness like the Merriam-Webster definition gave us. There's a lot of people that are unhappy about various things. And of course, it's always cloaked in righteous causes. Uh, It's cloaked in, you know, we were robbed. This was wrong. This was unjust. We deserve better than this. All these things that we tend to excuse in ourselves when we get angry and and upset and we think we're always righteously angry and can find uh, ourselves to be the best lawyer to defend our anger and treat it as if it's the purest anger that's ever been on the face of the planet when we know that's not the case. But the the anger in the culture is become so apparent on the news media, on social media, uh, amongst friends and families that are, you know, have differing opinions on certain issues, hot button issues. And I think anger has become almost a a badge of honor. If you don't get angry, you're seen as weak. You're seen as, you know, you really don't care about righteous causes or you really don't care about, uh, about truth, about uh, helping those that are in need, things like that. But so uh, John MacArthur preached a message called The Forgiveness in the Age of Rage. And take a look, what he, take a look and see what he said about anger. If any one corrupt attitude defines our culture, it is anger. There is anger in our music. There is anger in our films. There is anger 
in our television programs. There is anger in our schools. There is anger in our universities. There is anger in our families. There is anger everywhere in this society. And so you can see, as you said, anger is in the society. It's everywhere. It's permeated all of our, all of our homes, all of our music, our video games, everything. everything everybody's just constantly angry or on the edge of being angry which is interesting because there's a prophet that says anger rests in the bosom of fools. So if you don't want to be a fool, don't allow anger just be waiting and waiting to bubble up out of you when, once somebody crosses you or does something that you don't like. Um, sinful anger is the fuel that fans the fire of riots. And so why do we get angry? Why do people get angry? Why do I get angry? Because I don't think there's anybody on this planet that's never been angry, that's old enough to have experienced being offended. Um, so just a few things that I jotted down here was when I when I get angry, I don't deserve this. That's the first thing that comes. I don't deserve this. I deserve better treatment. I don't deserve this uh, this slander. I don't deserve somebody talking to me like this. I don't deserve somebody doing this to me. You know, I'm me. I'm I'm perfect. I I don't deserve to be talked down. Or I don't deserve to be rebuked. I deserve to have people always say nice things about me. I deserve people to always uh, care about my needs and about my feelings and everybody else's feelings don't matter mine matter so that's when i get angry or when most people i think get angry they're initially they're getting angry because they're because they're thinking i don't deserve what's happening right now i don't deserve these words i don't deserve all these things that are taking place right now but secondly when we talk about what makes us angry this is unfair this is unjust i don't deserve this and also this is unjust this is not right so there again we sneak in the the unjust or the unfair because everybody knows that to be fair and just is a good thing so if something bad is happening to me it must be unjust therefore I have the right to be angry and that's how we can justify our anger it's unjust it's un, it's not right and sometimes we are right something sometimes when we are mistreated when somebody says something that's not true it's right that it, it is unfair and it is unjust uh, but I'm talking about other times where there are issues where anger clouds our judgment and kind of doesn't allow us to think more clearly or even give somebody else the benefit of the doubt that maybe they weren't trying to offend they were maybe just mistaken or maybe they uh they they didn't even weren't even trying to offend you and we just jumped down their throat and and, and accused them of of whatever it is that they offended us with and think that we are completely right because it was unjust for them to do or say whatever they said and of course at least to my way is the right way if you don't agree, you must be torn down. If you don't agree with how I think, how I operate, how I see the world, then you are wrong and you don't even deserve to be heard. I don't even deserve to listen to what you have to say. And again, we're all guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. I, it's easier just to cut somebody off when they don't agree with you instead of trying to listen and understand. But the Bible says that we should be swift to hear, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. So if we want to be, uh, show that we are truly children of God, we ought to be swift to hear and slow to speak. But today, in today's day and age, we are slow to hear and swift to speak and swift to respond. And one of the last things I jotted down was it just, it makes us uncomfortable when we come into contact with a differing opinion or, a, or somebody who has said something bad about us. It's easier to just ignore it and be angry about it and be bitter and stir over it and not actually try to go to the person and fix the issue as Jesus told us to do in, in uh, uh, Matthew 18 where he said to go to your brother if he offends you and try to work it out with him, just you and him alone. But we kind of do it the opposite way. We go to everybody else around 
and tell them and complain about it instead of actually going to the person that offended us. And again, we're all guilty of doing that, but this is part of the anger issue. We'd rather kind of pet our anger instead of dealing with it and going to the person and, and trying to rectify whatever the issue might be. So it makes us uncomfortable, and that's what gets us angry. So just to relate it to the riots last year or the Capitol riots as well, people go out there and riot because they're uncomfortable with the situation in the country. They're uncomfortable with how things are going on or how things might be changing. They don't want that to take place, and they go out and riot and create a stir and create all kinds of trouble. So there's a few examples of riots in the Bible, and I want to cover those real quick. And they're all in Acts, the, one, the three that I found. The first one that I, was in Acts 17, 1 through 8, where Paul and Silas were preaching. And, you know, preaching the gospel to the lost. And the Jews were very angry with them. And they came out against them. And they wanted to, and they accused them falsely of uh, tearing people away from uh, traditions and wanting to establish their own kingdom. All these false accusations were swirling around and so they caught this guy that they thought Paul and Silas had been staying with and they just assaulted him in his house and just completely attacked him and and the guy Jason was his name was forced to have to provide security showing that he would not allow Paul to use his house even if even though it wasn't true or even proven as far as we can tell in the scripture that Paul was staying with him he got himself into trouble because the mob mentality was we have to do something because what this what Paul and Silas are doing are wrong and it's making us angry, it's making us uncomfortable, our way is the right way and Paul is turning this world upside down with this gospel that he's preaching, we have to attack him. The other one was in uh, Ephesus when Paul was preaching there and again Paul's ministry was far reaching, he was preaching the gospel literally everywhere he went and and making sure that people are hearing the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and it was upsetting the world especially in Ephesus where there was this great goddess that they served was who, what, whose name was Diana or Artemis and uh, there's a man named Demetrius who was a silversmith who had who was responsible for making shrines for the goddess Diana and he was making a lot of money doing it because the whole world was uh, kind of uh, uh, was kind of impressed or under the uh, superstitious effect of worshiping Diana and when Paul was saving when God was saving souls through the preaching of Paul this was upsetting their uh, Demetrius Demetrius's and their and the rest of their silversmith's ministry or their their business as far as selling silver shrines silver shrines and this angered them and they went out and stirred up the people and they, the Ephesians were stirred up by Demetrius and the national pride was damaged by the mass conversion of people throughout Asia so there was this emotional outrage and chanting, chanting for two hours where they were saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Just for two whole hours they were chanting this because they've been whipped up into a frenzy because of the rhetoric of Demetrius and the other uh, silversmiths who were really doing it for a personal gain. It had nothing to do with unjust treatment or something that was bad or wrong. It was just Paul preaching the gospel, people being saved and not wanting to go buy silver shrines anymore because they were serving the one true God. And the last one was where uh, they, there was Jews in Asia that were just angry at the new doctrine that was upsetting the religious way of life. So they were slandering Paul, telling him that they were not, that he was telling the, the Jews to not care about the Mosaic law, which was not true. He was telling them that they were, uh, the Jews were, so the, the Jews got angry and were stirring up all the people. And they were just slandering Paul left and right. And they were, were, were ready to kill Paul. They had grabbed him. They had pulled him out. Of the uh, of the theater or wherever he was preaching, and they were beating him up, 
And had it not been for the Roman guards that came and, and took Paul and saved his life, Paul probably would have been dead because of the, again, the mob mentality of anger reaching to the boiling point where this guy is upsetting our way of life. Something unjust is happening to us. Our way is the right way. How dare this guy come in and, and try to upset what we're doing here? This is wrong and we have to do something about it. And they were about to kill the guy on the spot out in the street just beating him up just for preaching the gospel. And so... We, as we see, you know, riots are old. I mean, this this took place two thousand years ago in 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 ancient uh, Middle East and Asia, and uh, the we see the same sentiment today. People get angry. They go out into the streets. They cause a stir. They get violent. They hurt innocent people that had nothing to do with what was with what they're angry about. And we see people died last year in the BLM riot, the Black Lives Matter riots. We see people died in the uh, capital riots and it all goes back to their misery their it goes back to their their hope is so focused on this world alone that they can't possibly they can't rest they have no rest until things are set in what they think would be the right way so if you think they some people think that the the police are out to get them they have to set they have to bring justice to the police in this life um, some people think that the election was stolen they have to bring justice to, to the people who stole it in this life because they have no other recourse. They think this is all it. And this is kind of the, the thought that Paul was getting at to the Corinthians where as Christians, our hope is in Christ. It's not in this world. And if our hope was only in Christ in this world, we, were, we would be of all men most miserable. And as in another passage, he said, well, tomorrow we should just eat and drink because we, we're going to die anyway. But our hope is not just in this life. Our hope is in Christ who has given us a, an eternal hope that can ne never be taken away. So when it comes to riots and, 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 and things of that nature, the Bible speaks very clearly about rioting. I think one of the first passages that comes up is Exodus 23, 2, where it says, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil, neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment. So clearly right there it says, don't follow a multitude to do evil. Don't go after the crowd. Don't go out rioting with crowds to create a stir and stir up people and, and resist government and break into the capitol buildings or break into the police precinct or you know bust up businesses or bust up police cars all the things that we've seen over the past year with all the riots these this this is evil according to god's word and it says neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment so what that's saying there is don't speak in a cause that that many people are speaking against if if it, if, if the end of it is just to pervert justice and perverting justice is going around the established authority that God has established to, to create your own authority. And that's, that's a huge problem. And that's another thing that uh, John MacArthur brought out in his sermon on, on forgiveness. And I want you to take a listen to it right here. You don't have to wish the worst on somebody who offended you. God will take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. You're not the judge. If you act as the judge, what you're saying is, God is too slow, God is too indifferent, God is too preoccupied, God is too weak, or God is too unjust, I'm going to have to take this into my own hands. That is blasphemy. God alone is able to deal with sin, and He always does. He has the perfect and true understanding of the offense. You don't. He has the highest standard. Yours is lower. He has the full authority. You have none. He is impartial, you're not. 
He is omniscient and eternal, seeing the end from the beginning. You're short-sighted and ignorant, seeing nothing beyond today. He is wise and good and acts in perfect holiness. You are blinded by the sin of anger. So you see, I think it's pretty clear that we should not put the judgment in our own hands. We leave the judgment to God. He's the avenger. He's the one that will set everything right. Our standards are not like his. His standards are much higher than ours, and he has the full content. He, he knows the hearts of the people that are involved. He knows all the secret things that we don't know about. So he's the only one who's qualified to bring about true justice. So some more passages that talk about just who, where we should put our trust, where we should where we should put our hope. Psalm 146, 3 through 6, it says, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. That's a pretty clear statement. Why would you put your trust in princes and politicians and presidents and congressmen and women in whom there's no help? They're, they're not going to give you hope. They can't give you a lasting trust, a lasting peace in this world. Further, it says, his breath goes forth, he returneth to his earth, and that very day his thoughts perish. So when these people, one day they're going to die, and then after that their, their ideas are gone, their, their plans for quote-unquote changing the country or making the country better or whatever, make America great again, whatever the slogan is, it, they're, it's going to perish with them, and then your hope is gone because that person is gone. They don't, they don't have, they can't carry on forever. But the Bible says, Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, which made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that therein is, which keepeth truth forever. So that's the contrast. These people die, and they, their ideas are gone. God's truth lives on forever. Proverbs 28.7, it says, Whoso keepeth the law is a wise son, but he that is a, com but he that is a companion of riotous men shameth his father. How many men and women that were out there rioting uh, over the past year were bringing shame to their families, bringing shame to their, to their, to their fathers, to their mothers. I mean, it's it would be embarrassing to see your child out there riding in the streets causing havoc and, and, that, and know, knowing that that's, that's what you know, that may be what you have taught them or that may be what, how you have raised them. Um, and it brings shame to you as, as, as a parent. And people, sometimes people say, well, well, people are out there, they're writing, they are doing all these things because of all the, because of all these external factors, the, the unjust uh, police force, the unjust politi politicians, the unjust uh, teachers, the unjust uh, parents or family or wherever they grew up in. They're saying all these external factors are causing me to be out here in the streets writing. I wouldn't be doing this if all this other stuff, external things weren't happening. But Jesus has a completely different take on that. In Matthew 15, 10 to 11, and then verses 15 to 20, he says, And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand. So he said, Get ready. This is what I'm, what I'm about to tell you is important. Understand this. Get this. He says, Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. So it's not what we put in that defiles us. It's what comes out of us, what's already in us. And he goes on to say, Then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto us this parable. And Jesus said, Are ye also yet without understanding? Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth into the, in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out unto the drop? So he's saying, just like the natural digestive process, whatever we eat is going to come into our body. It's going to go out, uh, whether through urine or through feces, and, and that's it. However, he says, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart. And they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, 
fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. So Jesus is saying that the things that come out, the sins that we do, are part of who we are. They come out of our heart. Now, that's not to say that there aren't external factors that may influence those things that are within us. But we are born sinners. We are born with these things in our hearts. We are born with evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications. That all that stuff was already within us. Now, like I said before, there may be certain circumstances where some people are in a, an environment that kind of fans those flames a lot more than others. Uh, but that doesn't neglect. That doesn't change the fact that all of us are born with these. Uh, these sins within our bodies, within our hearts, and they come out at various times. So the Bible gives a contrast between your former life as an unbeliever and then your, your life as a Christian. And it says in Ephesians two eleven to 12, it says, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision. So the Jews, which are the ones who circumcised, they were calling the uh, the people who weren't circumcised or the Gentiles, the heathen, the pagans, they were called uncircumcision. So he was Paul was saying that they were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. That at that time you were without Christ. So when, when when you were without Christ, this was your state. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And that's exactly what we're seeing in society when we see people go out and rioting and, and looting and attacking the Capitol building and attacking the police that are just there to protect the Capitol building, attacking the police uh, during the BLM riots, things like that. These, these are people that have no hope. They have they're without God in the world. They they may have a a just cause in their mind for their attacking uh, the government or attacking those those in authority, but they're just showing that they have no hope. They have no recourse because they don't have they don't have God. They don't have God. They don't have God in the world. They have no hope that they can rely on to know that yes, there is a God looking out to save, to deliver, to to uh, to vindicate me uh, out of this situation. And again, Paul goes. Paul talks to the Thessalonians, saying, "But I would not have you to be ignorant." First Thessalonians four thirteen. It says, "But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope." So there's a, another contrast there between Christians who have other Christian brothers and sisters that die versus unbelievers who have their unbeliever, unbelieving friends and families die. As a Christian, when when we have a brother or sister that dies, yes, it's painful, it's sorrowful. Even Jesus wept knowing he was going to raise Lazarus from the death in John 11. Jesus wept because he loved Lazarus. He was his, he was his friend. They, they maybe grew up together and knew each other for years, and so it was a sad thing to see Lazarus die, even though Jesus himself knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So, of course, there's sorrow when you lose somebody close to you. But Paul is saying you don't need to sorrow as those who have no hope. Because when other unbelievers sorrow, when, they, when somebody dies, they have no chance of seeing that person again. They have, they have no hope to see them again. And especially to see them again in a resurrected body, serving and living uh, with God in heaven and, and enjoying him forever. They have no hope of that. And, that's, and, and so that's the contrast where people... When we when we die, we sorrow, yes, but not to the point of despair, not to the point of hopelessness, where we just never recover from their death. We can even have joy that we're going to see them again one day in heaven because we have that promise from God. First Timothy one one says that our the Lord Jesus Christ is our hope. That's our hope in this world is Jesus Christ who was who was risen, uh, who was risen two thousand years ago, 
and he's still ruling and reigning today in heaven and he will return again and that's our hope that's our plan to see him again now what should we do when we do see unjust things happening in our government and we see people abusing their power first timothy 2 1 through 3 says i exhort therefore that first of all supplications prayers intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men for kings and for all who that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty for this is good and acceptable in the sight of god our savior it's not acceptable to go out and riot it's not a go it's not acceptable to go out there and talk badly about the president talk badly about the law enforcement officers yes you can bring them to account for the evils that they do but again our chief goal should be to pray for them to supplicate for them to try to cause them or ask God to save them so that they can repent for their evil deeds that they're doing and abusing their power and uh, so I think it's very important to remember that we don't uh, we don't act as if we have no hope because that's how that's how people who have no hope in the world that's how they're going to act this is all they have this, the, this country is all they have or this world whatever the country that it may be in at the time this world is all they have so they can't afford to let anything go wrong in this world or be or to suffer wrong they have to get revenge they have to get justice for themselves in this life because they have no hope beyond this life so there's a passage in this book called stressed out by todd friel that i read a couple years ago and there's a sec in the second second section of the book he gives these anxiety relievers and i think the best one for me was anxiety reliever number eight and i want to read you a passage here he says, you have an avenger and his name is Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 4, 6. He will seek, find, and destroy every unredeemed sinner who has ever sinned against you when he returns to judge the living and the dead. Your avenger will utterly crush your enemies. Whatever awful deed has been done to you, the lion, the lion of Judah will, will pursue your nemesis and utterly demolish them as he casts your offenders into an eternal lake of sulfur. And he goes on to say, do you really think you can do a better job of dealing with your enemies than that? God's justice is so thorough that no man, regardless of status, will escape. The Lord's justice is total, unremitting, and unbearable. Who has been troubling you? You have an avenger. Who has, who has caused you grief? Your avenger will punish that person on your behalf. Who has done wicked things to you? You will receive justice as your God grinds your enemy to powder. Why are you harboring vengeance? When that is your avenger's job, he will do who, he will do it better than anything you could ever imagine. Why do you still hold a grudge when your avenger has written their sinful deed in his book of remembrance? Revelation twenty twelve to 15. Why are you bitter toward people who have wounded you when this captain of your salvation is going to war against unregenerate sinners? You do not need to hold on to your vengeful feelings for two reasons. Your, venge your vengeance is sinful and God's is not. Besides, he's going to do a much better job of avenging the sins committed against you than you ever could. So that's the hope that we have. God will seek, find, and destroy every single person that sinned against you. I don't care what the crime was that they did against you, it will be dealt with very thoroughly, far beyond what you could ever imagine, whether in this life or in the next. God is a gracious God. He allows the wicked to go their way. He allows them to do wicked deeds for a certain period of time. Sometimes he kills them on this earth. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes they enjoy their life on this earth and they end up going to hell and are still in hell for eternity now, thrown into a lake of fire. And then one day they'll be judged for the whole world to see their wicked deed and then be thrown into the lake of fire for all of eternity. 
so we have a sure hope let's not uh let's not become like those who riot you know like as the bible says those who go about and rioting and drunkenness and then they look at us like we're the strange ones when we're not out there rioting in the streets it's because we have a more sure hope which is in christ jesus the world does not have that hope the only hope is in this life the only hope of justice is in this life the only hope of revenge and recompense is in this life but ours we can wait for eternity and knowing that god will have his day in court with every single person who did something wrong against him against us against you don't worry god will take vengeance on your behalf and it will be much more thorough than what you could ever think to do to your enemy all right so that's that and i will see you on the next episode of do loss